0: Here in Joshua 3, we're we're at a point where Israel's getting ready to be led across the Jordan into the land of Canaan, where they're going to be in for one big, great adventure after adventure after adventure, which we're going to be looking at as we go through the book of of Joshua, but there's been that preparatory work that's been taking place as God has come and commissioned Joshua and God has come to assure Joshua, Joshua, though you may be trembling at the thought of having to lead this nation in, because yes, they've been a difficult nation, and and at the thought of having to come into this land where yes, there's giants, there's enemies awaiting you, God says, Joshua, be strong and courageous, why? because I am with you." So God's been reminding Joshua, you're not doing this alone. You're not going in of your own accord or your own strength. You're going in by the mighty hand of the Lord. And we get to see that even in chapter three, before they're even touching foot in the land, they're seeing the evidence of God being with them and and going before them. Let's pick it up here, chapter three, we read here, then Joshua rose, early in the morning and they set out from acacia grove and came to the jordan he and all the children of israel and lodged there before they crossed over so it was after three days that the officers went through the camp and they commanded the people saying when you see the ark of the covenant of the lord your god and the priests the levites bearing it then you shall set out from your place and go after it so the israelites are positioning themselves now to march into the land. They've been over in Acacia Grove. Now they're moving right up to the banks of the Jordan River where they're camped out now for three days. And they're told, wait until you see the Ark of the Covenant being led out before you. Now the Ark of the Covenant, of course, was that very uh, article that sat in the Holy of Holies there in the tabernacle and eventually in the temple that will be built but it sat there and there's only the the high priest that could go into the holy of holies and there before the ark of the covenant sprinkling the blood upon the lid which was known as the mercy seat only one day of the year the high priest could go in and make atonement for the sins of the nation and it was there at the mercy seat that god would meet with them and, and atone for sin so this article this ark of the covenant was such an important feature in the life of Israel and really representing for us the presence of God. It's there that I'll meet with you, God says. So it's representing for them the presence of God, it's the manifestation of the presence of God for them. And it's the presence of God that's to lead them and go before them, it's the presence of God that they are to be watching for and following after, you see. See, we're not to launch out with our own interests or agendas and ask God to follow along. We're to be moving where He is moving. We're to keep our eyes on Him and say, God, unless you're with me, just like Moses would say, unless you go before me, no way, I'm not I'm not going. And we need to be ready to follow the Lord, but be sure that we're only going where the Lord is indeed leading. And I love how it says there at the end of, uh, of verse 3 that they are to go after it. And I know that means... Follow behind, but man, how we need to. Yeah, taking some liberties here, right? Thank you, Joseph. We need to be those that are going after the very presence of the Lord, seeking after him, having a heart that says, Lord, I want more of you. I don't want to be absent from you. I don't want any part of my day to be absent from the presence of the Lord. We need to be pursuing him. We have a heart for him and and go after him. tells us in Jeremiah 29, verse 13, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with half of your heart? With all of your heart. That's right. With everything that you are, search after him, seek after him. Not that he's hard to find, but the idea is that everything you are, pursue after him. Want more of him. Desire him. Amos 5.4, for thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. It's there that you'll find life. Matthew 6.33, of course you know, but seek first, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things are going to be added unto you. But may he be our priority. May he be the thing that we are desiring more and more of of our life. May we be going after the Lord and desiring his presence and allowing his presence to lead us and that we're sure to be following right behind. But here's the thing. We must always keep the Lord before us. They had to keep an eye on the ark and know where it was and when it was on the move. They're camping out, but they're like, okay, where's the ark? Is the ark, has, has the ark moved? Is the ark gone anywhere? Is it here? Ah, There it is, good, okay, I see it. They are keep their eyes on the ark and know when it's moving. Is Jesus captivating you? Is he your focus today? Are we being distracted by so many other things that we're missing out on where he wants to lead us and where he's moving, where he's designed to take us? May we have our sights set on him, just as Israel is called. Man, be watching the ark. And when the ark, moves so you are to move yet verse 4 look at this yet there shall be a space between you and it about two thousand cubits by measure do not come near it that you may know the way by which you must go for you have not passed this way before and joshua said to the people sanctify yourselves for tomorrow the lord will do wonders among you so here's the flip side now as much as they were to pursue god and follow after him they need to recognize also the very holiness of God. And so they're called to follow at 2,000 cubits by measure, cubit being about 18 inches. So they're to follow at 3,000 feet, 1,000 yards behind. They're to be keeping 1,000 yards distance from the Ark of the Covenant. Now that's a lot of space, 1,000 yards. There needed to be a reverence and respect towards this Holy article. And remember the the ark of the uh, covenant contained the two tablets of the law, the jar of manna, the the rod of Aaron that that budded forth, and and within these things it reveals to us. First of all, seeing those two tablets, the the ten commandments, that the law could never bring us close to God, could never bring us to where we needed to be before the Lord. There was a great distance still in place because of our sin. See our our good works and righteousness. No matter how much we upheld the law, we were always falling short. There was always a distance between us and the Lord. And we needed something greater. We needed a savior. And Jesus now has come to bring us near. Look at what we read in Hebrews 10, verse 19 and 23. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Remember, it's the veil that separated the holy of holies from the holy place in the tabernacle. The holy of holies, where the ark of the covenant sat. A great veil separated them. Nobody could go in, only the high priest one day a year, I said. But now, Jesus has consecrated that way to the veil of his flesh. And having a high priest that says, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises is faithful what does it say there in verse 22 let us draw near now praise the lord because jesus now our high priest not just priests carrying the ark of the covenant moving but keeping a distance now our high priest jesus has come to draw us near through a new and living way, which is what his sacrifice made on the cross to pay the, the penalty for our sins, to bring us into a right standing with God. Something that the law could never do. Something our own righteousness could never do. Jesus has provided for us so that now we can draw near. We don't have to follow at a distance, my friends. We don't have to sit back and go, okay, we keep our eyes on Jesus, but we remain abiding in Jesus, not from a distance, but being connected him now praise the lord for that now as they were to follow this holy article they themselves were to be holy it says that they're they're called to it says sanctify themselves which means to be set apart but here's the thing we need to keep in mind we often think that holiness is accomplished by refraining from certain things oh i don't do those things i don't do that so i'm very holy we can oftentimes think that way, right? I used to think that way a lot. Uh, didn't do this, didn't, you know, don't, don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls that do that sort of idea, right, think, I, that's, I'm holy, I don't do that stuff. And we can equate holiness to things that we're refraining from, but really it, the idea is to be set apart. So we're separated from the things in the world, yes, that's good, but it's not just refraining from, it's being set apart to, and we're being set apart to the Lord. Who is ultimately holiness he is holy and as we draw closer to him we're being made holy we're being set apart sanctifying ourselves listen definitely remove the things that are impeding that progress separate yourselves from the things of this world but be certain you don't just stop there be set apart unto jesus and when we're set apart to jesus when we're abiding in him and walking in obedience to his word we're going to see great wonders of the Lord. That's what, what Joshua says, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you there at the end of verse five. We'll continue on in verse six. Then Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And the Lord said to Joshua, this day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you you shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant saying, when you have come to the edge of the water, the Jordan, you shall stand now in the Jordan. So Joshua said to the children of Israel, come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. Verse 10, and Joshua said, by this you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, Amorites, the Jebusites, termites, every single one of them. Behold, verse seven, behold the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take for yourselves 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe, and shall come to pass, as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, the waters that come down from upstream, and they shall stand as a heap. Now, God was going to work in a way where he was going to exalt Joshua and make it very clear that this is the man that God is using to carry out his purposes and to lead the nation. This is not about Joshua trying to make himself great. It was rather to show the greatness of God. It was to confirm to the people that God was with Joshua and was working through Joshua to lead the people of Israel into Canaan. And we need to be careful that we never, you know, fall prey to the desire to be exalted or to glory in self. That's that's a very easy temptation for many of us where we want to be puffed up. We want to be seen. We want to be recognized sometimes. And we can veer into that, you know, place of desiring the glory. That's what happened with Satan, isn't it? Satan became puffed up with pride and he wanted to be exalted rather than exalting the Lord. And we know what the outcome of was that. Listen, ultimately we have nothing to exalt in. Let's just be real, okay? Hey, that might be a bit of a shock for some of you tonight. I'm sorry to ruin your day, but recognize something. There is nothing within us that is exaltable if that's even a word, but I made it up tonight just for you. There's nothing within us that is exaltable. Let's, let's be honest with ourselves and let's humble ourselves. And let's recognize so that God wants to work in a way where it's not exalting us, but exalting him. And anything that's worth exalting in our lives is there only because of God. So he deserves the glory. 1 Corinthians 1 says, it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord it's the only thing that we really have to glory in. He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Now, there's some great assurance being given to the priests and to all the children of Israel, and that is just as God held back the waters of the Red Sea when he led Moses and the nation of Israel out of Egypt and through the Red Sea in that great deliverance out of Egypt, so too now he says, I'm going to hold back the waters of the Jordan so that they can come and take possession of their inheritance. Now, we see this land being greatly contested throughout history as to who has the right to it. Does Israel have the right to it? Have they colonized it? And it's important we get a good understanding as to the history of this land, especially considering the days that we're living in. uh, I'm going to plan to take a bit of time after the message to sort of visit that and look at that a little bit for us here tonight in light of what we see happening in the media today with the war going on in Israel and all that's happening. So we're going to take a little bit of time to look at just, you know, what the beef is there, who's the rightful heir to the land. But let me just say this point, that the land is God's land, okay? The land is God. Uh, I guess we don't have to talk about it afterwards. We just settled it right there. The land is God's land, all right. In fact, notice what I read there in verse 11. Behold the ark of the covenant. Are you with me there, verse seven? Behold the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth. Not only is he the Lord, the land of Israel, he's the Lord of all the earth. In other words, every nation is his. Every, every piece of land is his. He's the Lord of all the earth. He owns it all and he's in control of it all. And he's given the land of Canaan to the Israelites for it to be their land and the land of Israel. Psalm 24 one says, the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. It's all the Lord's. He's the owner of it all. And he has the right to choose what he does with that land. And we know very clearly from scripture, as we'll look at afterwards, God's given this land to Israel. And as he rolls back the waters now to let them in, he's going to showcase his power. And in doing so, the same power that will conquer the godless nations that they're moving into to conquer, the same power, God displaying it even before they come in the land. I'm going to hold back the waters. And it's going to be a show of my might to show that i'm gonna hold back and drive out the people and the nations that are before you in the land so verse 14 so it was when the people set out from their camp to cross over the jordan with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people and as those who bore the ark came to the jordan and the feet of the priests who bore the ark dipped in the edge of the water for the jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest that's important and we'll check that out in a second Verse 16, that the waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zaretan. So the waters that went down into the sea of the Arabah, which is the salt sea, it failed. They were cut off. And the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Then the priests in verse 17, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all of Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. Now I'm sure the priests had a lot of questions and doubts running through their minds when they were making their way to the river banks, right? And this is no ordinary season. Okay. It's when the Jordan is overflowing its banks, as it says there, it's the, the, the time of harvest. This is around springtime right now where the Jordan River was not much to really be concerned about or worried about. But in the springtime, especially with the the snow melt of Mount Hermon coming down and, and, and rainy season, the banks of the Jordan at this time would overflow and this would swell way up and become quite a significant river to have to get through. It's interesting, isn't it? How God waits and does things oftentimes at the most inconvenient times. (laughs) Would it be a lot easier to say, you know what? We're gonna hold off on this crossing until after the harvest time. We're gonna wait till maybe summertime when it's a little dry, a little bit easier, you know? But it's not inconvenient to God. Let's be clear about that. It might seem inconvenient for us, but what it does is it actually allows God to be put on even greater display of his power. When God does things in, in ways that to us seem, this is inconvenient. This seems like it's insurmountable. God's going, oh, this is just the time that I love to act. Because once again, it clearly erases this at all being anything of you and causes us to be seen as completely of me, God would say. It displays his power in greater ways. When he operates in ways that seem so contrary to when we would want to see things done or how we would want to see things done. God's waiting for the rivers to flood. I love that. Now, here's the thing. This will allow now people to hear about this and nobody could come back and say, that was no really big miracle. I've been to the Jordan. People could cross over that easy. But did you see the flood season? Just like how people try to minimize the crossing of the Red Sea, right? Where they say, you know what? Red Sea actually means Reed Sea, and they actually just crossed over at this very marshy part where it was just really knee deep, and they just crossed over, it's very simple. Well, okay, I'll give you that, but then isn't that quite a a miracle for all of Egyptians' great army to drown in knee deep water? (laughs) Either way, you got a miracle. And some people would say that there was just, you know, natural ways that this water would be stopped up in the Jordan. And it's really, but it's quite interesting in that just as the priests get there, it stops. And as they move through the whole entire nation of Israel, the waters come again. Either way, you've got a a miracle here. So the priests have their priestly garments on, they have the Ark of the Covenant. As they come up to the, Riverbank. I'm sure they're thinking, "Wait a second, this, this can't be." I mean, we got a priestly garment on. God surely wouldn't want them to get wet. We got the Ark of the Covenant. Like, this is not going to be very. Uh, this isn't going to be a good idea for us to just kind of wade in. Why didn't he just, you know, stop the waters first, perhaps, then let them walk through on dry ground? I believe again, it's because as they're entering into new territory, God wants them to learn to live a life of faith. One which walks in complete trust and dependence on God when there's no other evidence to do so but his word. You see, this is what they've been commanded to do. You gotta walk up to the water banks, dip your feet in the water, and then God's gonna do this. They've been told this is what's gonna happen, but now they have gotta learn to act in faith and trust the Lord. They don't. Uh, I'm sure some of them are going, oh man, I hope the waters begin to, recede back even before we have to walk in like are we going to have to walk into our knees we're going to walk up to our waist like uh, what's this going to what's this going to be like are we going to actually just walk in right over our heads and get swept away like they have to trust the lord in what he said he would do and they have to begin to take that step of faith and get a little bit wet See, it was a failure of israel in the first place to believe what the lord was going to do that has kept them out of the land for these last 40 years they chose not to believe God at his word when he said, I'm giving you this land. They spied out and they're like, oh no, there's giants. God, I know you said you give this land, but I don't know if you saw the size of those people in there. No, God knew exactly. God wanted them to trust him at his word. It's kept them out of the land for 40 years. Now he wants them to trust him and to trust him simply at his word. So God brings them right up to the river and causes them to begin to have to step into the waters Without any sign of God doing anything, that's a real faith tester. But as they moved forward, God moved as well. God held the waters back only as they stepped into the waters. You know, I believe this is what we're going to experience sometimes. God doesn't often say, Look, I've cleared the way for you now. It's all just nice and comfortable for you. Everything's going to be a piece of cake. Just go ahead. God doesn't often work that way. It'd be nice, wouldn't it? Once in a while, I wouldn't mind that. But God doesn't do that. He says, Hey, I want you to move by faith and trust me see if god just clears the way makes everything comfortable for us it wouldn't be for our best wouldn't it god's not just trying to rush you to the destination he's interested in the journey and it's in that journey that we have a lot of lessons to learn and a lot of opportunities for our faith to not just be tested but for our faith to become strengthened as we trust the lord that's what God desires to do. And that's what will come as we begin to live with reliance on God alone and trusting Him at His word. If you don't learn to walk by faith, we're never gonna step out and move forward. If you don't have those moments of faith building and faith testing, we're, never gonna, we're gonna be too afraid to move. And oftentimes, God will simply say, go. And we're all like, well, hold on, explain this all to me, fill in the details a little bit. Say, no, no, I'll fill in the details as you go. You'll begin to see the pieces fall into place as you begin to go forward in obedience to my word. We want the whole picture sorted out for us. And that's what stalls people oftentimes from moving forward because they wanna make sure it's all gonna be safe. Listen, if God is telling you to go, it's gonna be the safest place for you to be. Don't feel like you have to figure it out. Take those steps of faith and see how that faith, not only is tested, but that faith is strengthened and allows you with even greater confidence to continue to move forward in the things of God. And sometimes stepping out of faith may require getting a bit wet, but, if that's, but instead of the lessons are learned and, and faith is strengthened. Think about, about Peter, when Jesus comes out to him in the storm, walking on the water, and Peter's like, that's Jesus. Jesus, may I step out and come on the water? And Jesus says, yeah. Peter gets out of the boat, and he begins to walk on the water. It's amazing. Yes, he got distracted. He began to get concerned about the waves around, and began to sink. Peter got wet. Gets put back in the boat. But you know what? He's the only guy that experienced walking on water, besides Jesus. Yeah, he got a little bit wet, but you know what? His faith got strengthened in that moment more so than the other disciples who sat in the boat and didn't experience that at all. And we criticize Peter, but I'm like, Peter's the only guy willing to step out, walk by faith. Yeah, he got a little bit wet, but he's going back to shore going, that was pretty awesome. That was pretty wild, man. It's pretty cool. So with this scene of overflowing waters, a seeming insurmountable obstacle, here's what F.B. Meyer writes about this. He says, but when the priest's foot touches them, the flood waters, they shrink away. Jesus has stepped down into these floods as our high priest. In Gethsemane, their overflowing tide washed around him. At Calvary, the water spouts went over his head. In the grave, he seemed momentarily to have succumbed. But since then they've been cut off. Through the ages, he has stood bearing the ark of propitiation and arresting the tumultuous floods. Thus far and no further, sinful soul deeply convicted look for the priest on whose person the storm broke and by whom it has been checked and stayed. Tried believer, be sure that the water floods cannot pass Jesus to reach or drown thee. His promise to thee is, when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. And when death approaches thee, O fearful and trembling one, thou wilt find Jesus standing between thee and its might, making a path by which thou shalt pass over dry shod. And that's exactly what happened. See, it's one thing to hold the waters back, but another thing for the people to all cross over on dry ground. Don't miss that. And we're talking about a few million people at this point in the nation of Israel walking through. You'd think as the waters just roll back with all these people kind of treading through, it's eventually gonna get you know, beaten down and get a little bit muddy, get a little dirty. Water's beginning to kind of you know, seep through. Yet they all walked over on dry ground see when god is at work he brings a complete provision and protection for the people god is showing his power here in this and when we compare the two crossings now that we've seen in israel's history the red sea crossing and the jordan river crossing they both were crossings of faith weren't they but the red sea is really a picture of faith unto salvation and deliverance they were a redeemed bunch, leaving the world behind them, leaving that of Egypt behind them. The enemy was drowned in the sea and defeated. And we need to continue to walk by faith now, not unto salvation, but unto the fullness of life, our spiritual inheritance that we now have in and through Christ. That's what moving into the promised land is all about. It's not our, our picture of, you know, heaven as some of our hymns talk about, you know, heavenly. No, it's moving into the Spirit-filled life, The, the full inheritance of what Jesus has for us, because there's still battles to fight, there's enemies still there, but now we're walking in that greater power in and through Jesus Christ. So we're talking about the baptism that we see through the Red Sea unto salvation, and then the baptism of the Spirit now going through the Jordan River. And this sort of victory that we see here as they come through can only be accomplished through the Spirit. This crossing, again, it's that picture of the baptism of the Spirit. All believers, have the Holy Spirit in them, according to Ephesians 1, but not all believers are experiencing that overflow of the Holy Spirit, leading, guiding, and strengthening them. How we need this filling of the Holy Spirit to live a victorious life in and through Jesus Christ. Oh, may we be desiring each and every day, Lord, fill me today with your Spirit. Overflow and empower me so that I might live this life to your glory and your praise. And here's, notice this, this is amazing. Because what's, really the purpose of the Holy Spirit. Don't tell me it's about rolling on the ground, falling backwards, being slain. Just don't tell me that's the purpose of the Holy Spirit. We've made it that oftentimes in, in short circles and we've just completely uh, misapplied that. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is empowering us to live a life of witness unto Jesus Christ, Acts 1-8. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit is come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. And notice here now, as we move into chapter four, it's all about witness. This is amazing, look at this. And it came to pass, chapter four, verse one, and it came to pass when all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan that the Lord spoke to Joshua saying, take for yourselves 12 men from the people, one man from every tribe and command them saying, take for yourselves 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan from the place where the priest's feet stood firm You shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. Verse four, then Joshua called the 12 men whom he had appointed from the children of Israel, one man from every tribe. And Joshua said to them, cross over before the ark of the Lord, your God, into the midst of the Jordan. And each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel. That this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come saying, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it crossed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off and these stones shall be for a memorial to the children of Israel forever. And the children of Israel did so just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones from the midst of the Jordan as the Lord had spoken to Joshua according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel and carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. So these 12 men that Joshua calls upon are to gather a stone, a large stone, carry on their shoulder and take it out 12 men, which equals 12 stones, and they're to put them up as a memorial now on the other side of the river. So they get on their side, and now that's gonna stay there. So when people are passing by and Jewish children are walking by, they're going, what's this all about? sit down have i got a story for you let me explain this to you and it's an opportunity for them to pour into the children the wonderful works of god the power of god in leading them and bringing them through across the jordan into the promised land that he was giving them see it was meant to be this witness and an opportunity to look back but to declare what god has done They were a practical reminder of what God did on behalf of the Israelites and a point of reference to share that news with upcoming generations. And aren't we told to do that all through scripture? I mean, we don't have time to go through all the, Exodus chapter 12, verse 24 to 27, speaks about how you're to remind your children. So the whole Passover, you know, the the whole Passover is all about to be a continued memorial of what God has done for them. Deuteronomy chapter 11, they're called to lay up these words, to teach them to your children. Speaking of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. These are things that they're to be constantly sharing with their children. Psalm 103, two says, bless the Lord on oh my soul and forget not all his benefits. Do we take time just remembering all that the Lord has done for us? We take time just thanking him, God, you've been so good, you've been so faithful. You've shown your might in my life time and time again. And we need to remember these things. Be reminded that God is good, he's always been faithful. But we need to remember that in looking back, it needs to be cause for us to be spurred on into what God has for us today. Glorifying the past is a good way to petrify the present. Sometimes we make these memorials that turn into mausoleums and we just die at these points because we stay there and we don't cause them, allow them to move us forward in what God has for us today. No, those reminders are meant to excite us to go, Man, God, you've been faithful. I can't wait for what you've got for me today. I want to keep progressing in what you have for me now. Ecclesiastes 7.10 says, Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. Don't get held up, hung up, and held back by what God's done in the past. Let them be reminders so that you continue on to see God do greater things in the days ahead. May those memorials move us on to greater things and greater trust and faith in the Lord. That's what we're talking about. Greater trust and faith in the Lord. So not only were these stones to be set up on the other side of the Jordan, but Joshua now sets up 12 stones as a memorial in the middle of the Jordan. Look at verse nine. Then Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant stood and they are there to this day. So the priests who bore the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished, that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. And the people hurried and crossed over. So that memorial would be a sweet reminder that their old lives were dead and buried. We've gone through the waters. Our lives are laid down, but God has brought us through to the other side. He's delivered us now to where we're walking in victory and newness of life. Joshua's, I don't know, know, you know, at those stones, he says they're there to this day. Wouldn't it be fun to kind of go there one day and just like put a stack of 12 stones in the middle of Jordan and say, whoa, one of the greatest archaeological discoveries today. Man, you'd be famous. It just came to me. I'm going to maybe try that one day. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? Like, man, I mean, it'd be lying, but... I'll, I'll pray that through, I'll pray that, it would be fun. I agree, it'd be fun. <laughs> so, but just imagine every time that water now, you know, recedes, those rocks that are maybe covered at the swell of the water in the seasons, the water recedes, as they're walking along, they go, oh yeah, there's that memorial. There's that reminder for us of how God brought us through on dry ground. <laughs> like, how, how did that happen, dry ground? Kids are probably go, What? How did that happen? Just like, Man, that's God. Like, He's amazing. I, I, we could never do that, but God did that. Now, in verse 10, notice that the ark remained in the riverbed as everyone crossed over. That nation was also being reminded that the presence of God was with them. Just as He told Joshua that He would be with them in chapter 1, verse 9. They're walking by and they're seeing the ark of the covenant. They're like, Ah, oh, I have nothing to fear. I'm in the middle of a riverbed. (laughs) And those waters, man, I don't know how, but they're they're being held back. But it's a reminder, God, you're with us. You're gonna be with us and see us through. Verse seven, then it came to pass, when all the people had completely crossed over that the ark of the Lord and the priests crossed over in the presence of the people and the men of Reuben, the men of Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh crossed over armed before the children of Israel as Moses had spoken to them about 40,000 prepared for war crossed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel. And they feared him as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. Now, verse 12 here highlights for us these two and a half tribes that decided to stay on the east side of the Jordan. As God said, I'm giving you the land. They come into Jordan, they're like, you know what? kind of like it over here. I don't know if they were motivated by land that looked good or if they were motivated by fear of having to go into the land, but they say, we're going to hang out here. They never fully walked into the fullness of the promises of God, and they became the tribe that were first to be picked off when invading armies would come in from the east and, and come over this way. They put themselves in a vulnerable position because they failed to move in fullness of obedience to what God had for them. Now, what's even more interesting is they start on compromise. It seems like they're continuing on in compromise because they said, listen, we're going to camp out here, but we're going to send our men in with you. We're going to make sure that we fight the battles alongside you and secure your victory, and then we'll come back and live here. But Numbers, chapter 26 records for us the amount of men that they had for war in each of these tribes. And when you take these tribes of, of um, Gad, Reuben, and the half tribe of Manasseh, you have at least over 100,000 men for battle. And you hear there's only 40,000. It's like they're walking in a compromise going, ah, eh. I know he said, you know, I know God said, go in the land, but, eh. This is probably good enough. I know we said we're going to send our men in, but eh, 40,000, is that not good enough? They're continuing on in compromise. You know, when we begin to settle, man, we begin to slide. And we begin to continue that progression of compromise oftentimes. Don't settle. When God says, here's what I have for you, don't settle for just a part. Like we said, go for it. Go after it. Pursue him. Pursue all of him. Walk in fullness of obedience. Now on that day that God brought the Israelites through, we read here in verse 14, that he exalted Joshua in their sight. It was evidence that that Joshua is God's chosen vessel to lead Israel. He had been a faithful servant. He's been humbly serving alongside Moses. Not trying to jockey for position, but just being a humble, faithful servant. And now, God was blessing him in front of the nation. Luke 14, 11 says, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And we're seeing that in the life of Joseph. Let's, or sorry, Joshua. Let's finish the chapter here, verse 15. Then the Lord spoke to Joshua saying, command the priest who bear the ark of the testimony to come up from the Jordan. Joshua therefore commanded the priest saying, come up from the Jordan. And it came to pass when the priest who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord had come up from the midst of the Jordan and the soles of the priest's feet touched the dry land that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. Now the people came up from the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month and they camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones, which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal. Then he spoke to the children of Israel saying, when your children ask their fathers in time to come saying, what are these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over. That all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Notice the emphasis, you you fathers, teach us to your children. And all through scripture, the responsibility is given to the fathers to lead the home, lead the family. Men, you fathers, be certain that you are sharing with your children the goodness of God, the wonders of God, the greatness of God, that you're passing these truths on to your children. Share what God has been doing in your life with your kids pass these things on to them don't leave it to a church or a sunday school oh we're here to supplement and support but the responsibility has been given to you fathers yes moms you're not excused from this you come along as a parent don't think that you are absolved of all this either but understand where the responsibility lies. It's with the father to be the leader in the home and to lead the family in the truth of who God is and all that he desires to be for them. Teach your kids these things. This is what is being reminded for us here in the word. So They come up and Joshua sets up this memorial there at Gilgal. Now, Gilgal means to roll or means like rolling. And just as they would have these stones, I'm sure they're rolling them in a place and building them up on top of one another. Just as the waters were rolled back, this would be again a sign of how God was rolling away the reproach of Israel from all the nations around them, from the people that were in the land. They would surely know that the Lord is mighty. And the only response is to Fear him. I love how that ends in verse 24. That all the people of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that he may fear the Lord your God forever. And just as we saw last chapter with Rahab, she's already heard, and they know the greatness of the God of Israel, and they are fearing. And so God has rolled away that reproach of Israel. And the people of the land have already had their hearts sinking in fear at the sight of Israel making their way in. God's already worked in their lives on the other side of the Jordan, preparing the way for Israel to come in. Now, um, all right, how are we doing? You guys doing good? No good, okay. I'm just gonna end with a few thoughts here, just because as we talked about Israel, you know, coming land, yeah, there were people in the land that needed to be driven out. Driven out, but yet God remembers given them four hundred and thirty years to repent. They've been a wicked, wicked, evil people. God's given them plenty of chance to repent, and they've chosen not to. There's been child sacrifices happening in the land. There's been grotesque abominations that have been happening in the land. And God says, We're gonna drive them out, and this is now the land of Israel. Now This has been a hot button topic throughout history, and it certainly is only increasing in these days that we live with the war that's being waged in and against Israel today. And the confusion has come because, you know, we've seen maps of, you know, Palestine labeled as Israel. We hear about the Palestinian people today. Many people will still refer to this land as Palestine and the rightful heir to this land as being the Palestinian people. And there's a lot of confusion over these things. We hear this just being kind of thrown out there without it being checked or understood fully. And we see these things in the media. And so there's a lot of confusions going on, even in the church today, about you know, the nation of Israel and what's their place, what's their role even today. But understand something, long before there was ever a place known as Palestine, god has already claimed this land and had given it to israel joshua 1 we saw this a few weeks ago 1 verse 3 to 5 every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon i have given you not i will give it to you not if you you know pass the test we'll see how this no god says i've already given it to you guys you just have to step into it i've given it to you as i said in moses verse 4 from the from the wilderness And this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life as I was with Moses. So I'll be with you. I'll not leave you nor forsake you. What a great promise that is right there. In fact, the land that God gave Israel was much larger than the land we know today as Israel. Based on that verse right there and the 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 borders that god was making here's what the land of israel should have been this is the portion of land that god was giving to israel now if you can see that little brown you know shape you know what israel is like today and that little brown section that's what israel is today and so god was giving them some 330,000 square miles but the land of israel today is only 8100 square miles 330,000 square miles should have been theirs. They occupy 8,100 square miles. They never fully took all that God was giving them. The closest they came was in David's day. Now, this promise dates all the way back to Abraham, right? God said to Abraham, on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, and saying, to your descendants, I've given the sand from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, so that's from the Southern part, river of Egypt now up to the Euphrates in the North and then stretching out that way. I mean, the portion of land was huge. And God had said in Leviticus 25 verse 23, the land shall not be sold permanently for the land is mine for you are strangers and sojourners with me. So understand, as we've been seeing tonight, this is God's land. He's given, he's the Lord of all the earth. Yes, but this specific land, he's taken particular interest in to give a nation that he will choose a place to dwell. That's the nation of Israel and it's the land of Israel. Now we know that Israel has not been faithful. Yes, we get that, but God we'll always be faithful to his word. If God has reneged on his promises to Israel, then how can we trust him with what he's promised us? God is a promise keeping God. So a lot of people will say today, well, because of Israel's unfaithfulness, those promises now towards Israel, they've been transferred to the church. The church is now the new Israel. So you'll see people trying and, and Christians that will try to kind of make that argument that, listen, no, Israel is just a second nation and yes, by and large, they are a secular nation. We're not saying they're perfect, but God has promised this land, Israel, and promised that they will be back in this land, which you know is happening in 1948. God's promised that and God's a promise keeping God. It was an unconditional promise that God made with Israel, with, with Abraham to begin with. The promises given to Abraham were not conditional upon their obedience or their faithfulness. God made an unconditional promise. He was the one that was going to uphold this. This is his land. He's the owner of it, and he's given it to Israel, very clearly seen through scripture, through scripture. So even though Israel was unfaithful, even though they were punished and sent into exile multiple times, and they've had to face tough consequences because of their disobedient life, God's never turned that land over. Yet other people have ruled over land, but it's never been theirs. So where did the Palestinians come from? Well, in 135 AD, there was a a Jewish revolt against Rome. Rome being the, the, the oversight nation, part of the Roman empire here at this time. And so the Bar Kokhba revolt led by Simon Bar Kokhba happened in 135 AD. And the Roman emperor at that time Hadrian eventually brought an end to that revolt and drove the remaining Jews out of the land. He then turned around and renamed the land of Israel, Syria-Palestina, a Latin term, which derived from Israel's perennial enemies, the Philistines. It's not to say that the Palestinian people are the descendants of, uh, of the Philistines, we're not saying that. What I'm saying is he made up this name to call the land here that was once called Israel. And he made up a name to be kind of a slap in the face to the Jews. So from that time, the land has been known as Palestine or Palestine now today. But the indigenous people of the land are the Jews. They've had that land since around 1400 BC with the Canaanite conquest. And up to the time that the temple was sacked, and destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC. Since that time, from 586 BC, all the way to May 14th, 1948, the land of Israel did not operate under any autonomous rule. Okay, so the land has been sitting there and the people that were living in this land, Arab people and yes, Jewish people, that it still some remained in the land. The people that were living in the land were known as Palestinians. Even a Jew that was born in that area before 1948 had Palestine on the birth certificate, a Jewish person. Understand there's never been an ethnic people group known as the Palestinians. And this is getting, again, perpetuated throughout history, rewriting history to try to say that these are the indigenous people of the land and it's just not so. So throughout the early 20th century, under various leaders, wars and movements uh, and various leaders uh, made an attempt to give the Jews their own homeland. And so when Great Britain defeated the Ottoman Turks, this whole area became part of the British mandate. And on November 2nd, 1917, the Brits came up with the, the Balfour Declaration under British Foreign Secretary Arthur James Balfour. And that was to express their support for the establishment of a national home for the Jewish people in the land that was then known as Palestine. So lines were drawn and, and, and this is now under the British mandate, a land that they were designed to give. Now there's no like, you know, set countries in this area at this time. It's been under various, you know, uh, people groups and the Turkish uh, Ottoman Empire, Britain has come in now. And so they wanna carve out an area that they can again give and allow the Jewish people to live. So land uh, is kind of drawn up here, but then the Hussein family objected to this. And so Britain backed down from the plan. Winston Churchill then steps in later and draws a line down the Jordan River, right like this. And he says, okay, we're gonna give the east of the Jordan, we're gonna call it the Transjordan land, And then west of the Jordan, we're going to give to the Jewish people to live. Still referring to it as, as Palestine. Now in 1946, Transjordan became an independent nation. So there wasn't the country of Jordan before this time, but they became an independent nation in 1946 and then 1948 became just known as Jordan. So what's once called Transjordan now is just called Jordan. And it was in May 14, 1948, that Israel was now declared an independent state. Palestinians refer to this event surrounding the establishment of the State of Israel as the Nakba, or the catastrophe. That's how the Palestinians refer to this whole time. Now, there's lots of details that we're just skipping over, lots of things that we could say, but just for time's sake, we're giving you a general kind of overview of what we're looking at today. So. What happened then is the very next day, actually later that night, when Israel now has declared their independence as a nation, they have a land once again, fulfilling what prophecy said, you know, that there's never been a people group. And I don't know if I mentioned this before recently, but there's never been a people group that has um, been displaced from their homeland who have remained intact as a people group after four generations. After four generations, they've assimilated into the countries that they've been dispersed to, picking up their own uh, language. But Israel has retained their national identity with their national language. There's For thousands of years, there's no other uh, group of, of people or, or nationality that's done that. This is a modern day miracle that the people of Israel has retained their national identity and have been brought back into their homeland. Is a miracle. There's no other way to describe it, but that God is with this people. So as they declare their independence, May 14, 1948, that very night, five Arab nations come together to attack Israel. Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, and Saudi Arabia. And war breaks out. The war of independence. And from that point on, I mean, Israel brings an end to that eventually, but from that point on, war after war and attack after attack has happened against this nation of Israel. And it's all about other nations believing they don't have a right to the land. And their agenda is not just to acquire land or to try to, you know, balance things out. Remember, the state of Israel is like the size of New Jersey. You think about all the land that there is around there and why is everybody targeting Israel? It's because it's a a spiritual battle. This has no grounding in just what is right or proper or what makes sense. None of this makes sense other than it being a satanic, satanically driven spiritual battle that goes all the way back to Genesis 16, when Abraham, of course, tried to help God out with the promised child that he was, he was you know, to be given. Abraham and Sarah are getting older and older, and Sarah's like, Abraham, we need help God out. You better just go with my maid, Hagar, have a child. This can be the promised child of God. Abraham <laughs> foolishly does it, and there is produced through a work of the flesh, Ishmael. And here's what the word says about Ishmael, Genesis 16, 12. God says, he shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. See, Ishmael is the father of the Arab people. And when you go to the, not to paint everybody the same brush, but boy, they're a, I'm I'm just going to leave it. I'm not going to send it. And there's, been conflict now between the people of promise, the descendants of Isaac, the Jewish people. It's conflict with the people of promise and the product of the flesh, Ishmael, Arab people. And it's a satanically-led spiritual battle. There's no other reason for this kind of hostility. Israel is regularly under the threat of attack. They're not the oppressors. They're not the colonizers the problem in the Middle East, as you will often hear today, this isn't the situation here. People are quick to blame Israel as being the ones that are causing all the problems. But listen, they're in the land that God has given them and has miraculously brought them back into. Even when they're retaliating in the against the brutal Way that they've been attacked by Hamas. They're sending leaflets, dropping leaflets from the air to warn those in Gaza to say, hey, guys, you need to move away because we're coming we're and we're gonna fire back for what Hamas has done to us. And again, Hamas is the governing body there in Gaza, but they have no concern for human life. They're taking out Palestinians, Arab people, they're, they're taking out anybody just to further their cause. They have no concern for human life. They are a wicked, evil people. See, the issue in the Middle East, and I love what, what Dennis Prager says. He says that the problem in the Middle East is an easy one to define, but a very complex one to solve. It's easy to define because here's what's going on in the Middle East. One group wants to live in peace and the other group wants the other group dead. That's it. If if Hamas and all of Palestinians were to lay down their weapons, there would be peace. If Israel were to lay down all their weapons, they would cease to exist. That's what's going on in the Middle East. And that's what we need to be aware of and understand. We need to be careful not to be dragged into misconceptions and falsehoods regarding Israel. They're not perfect, yeah, we understand that. We know they haven't done everything right, but they are people that God is still working through, who is still carrying out his purposes and his promises through. They're special people, they're the apple of God's eyes, and we need to keep them in prayer and keep our support for them based on what God's word calls us to do, all right? So I hope that helps a little bit just to get a bit of understanding as to what's going on because you are going to hear things in the media, like I said on Sunday, that are going to paint a very different picture. And the more that Israel tries to deal with the real problem, the more that they're gonna be labeled as the bad guys as the ones that are committing all this atrocity and evil. Again, Israel's had the target on their back for, for so long. So we need to pray for them and we need to be a, a support to them. All right? Well, let's pray here. Worship team, we got another song we're going to sing? We need to sing after that. <laughs> now we need to just look to the Lord here. All right. Let, let me pray here, everybody. Lord, we thank you for this time to gather tonight to worship you to look to you and to your word and thank you god for the reminders tonight of how your presence goes before us you want to not lead us by pushing us ahead you want to lead us by having us simply follow you but lord help us help us lord to be obedient to follow you and to take those steps of faith trusting you at your word lord may we be quick to step out and see you work that it might be an opportunity to display your glory and your praise and lord we continue to pray for the nation of israel and all that's going on there lord we pray for peace we pray for the peace of jerusalem we pray for the peace of israel we pray for the peace in in Gaza and the West Bank we pray for the protection of lives all around that area lord we don't want to see anyone perish so god we pray that you'll bring an end to this war and provide peace in that land and lord when we pray for peace and land we know that that's going to come when you return so ultimately lord we are saying maranatha come lord jesus we need you god You're the only one that's going to fix all the the problems going on in this world. So we desire your return. But in the meantime, Lord, may we see many spared and saved and come to know you. Let us be active in that witness for you, Lord. So lead us on now, we pray in your name.